0: And so following the texts, not as an oblique window into some ancient phenomenon, but rather in terms of what they themselves, what they themselves were trying to communicate. And with reference to a God who isn't just any specific momentary human production, but is, I trust, I hope a God outside of the text who is out there loose in the world and indeed sustaining the world.
1: Welcome to It Means What It Means, the podcast in which a guy with some college and a day job asks experts questions about biblical studies. Today's guest is Colin Cornell. Colin is assistant professor of Bible and mission at Fuller Theological Seminary. Today we'll be discussing his chapter in a volume he edited. The book is titled Divine Doppelgangers, Yahweh's Ancient Lookalikes. Colin's chapter is titled Theological Approaches to the Problem of God's Ancient Lookalikes. I'll be releasing interviews with John D. Levinson and Brent Strawn on the 15th and 29th of this month to discuss their respective chapters in this same book. I'd like to also mention that Colin has a book coming out in January of 2024 titled Monotheism and Divine Aggression. I got to meet Colin at SBL in November of 2023, and he was... As wonderful to talk to in person as he was over a great distance here from my house, I also got to meet Brent Strawn. And it's a real pleasure to get to know these guys. They're, they're interesting. They're really engaging. I would direct listeners who like what they hear on this podcast to go check out the interviews that each of them did on the OnScript podcast. I have no problem being a shill for another podcast they're doing good work over there and I realized and I told both of them this when I met them that I realized I had slept on Brent Strawn I did not know anything about him prior to our interview after our conversation I went and listened to his interview over there and Colin's I think a couple of interviews over there and they're really interesting guys so this is a really cool book if what you hear with me here with Colin later this month with John D. Levinson and with Brent Strawn interests you. I'd say pick this book up. There's some dense stuff in here and there there are some reads that are a little bit lighter, but I don't think you'll walk away from any of that feeling like you wasted your time. It's a very instructive collection of essays and articles put into its chapters. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Colin Cornell. Colin Cornell, welcome to the podcast. I like to start out by having the guests tell us a little bit about themselves, so please tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. As we're recording this, I am the Provost Candler School of Theology postdoctoral teaching fellow at the Candler School of Theology. It's a part of Emory University. I've been responsible for this year for teaching courses um, in Old Testament. I taught one in the fall, which is pertinent I expect to this conversation, called Ancient Israel's Neighbors. As well as just the regular old introductory old testament sequence and aramaic which could be relevant to this conversation i don't know but that gets at some of my professional daily wick, which is old testament studies and within that i concentrate on history of religions biblical theology and a whole bunch of other exegetical matters i was trained at emory university for the most part more remotely more distantly in my past at princeton seminary
1: nice thank you the book that we're talking about is divine doppelgangers yahweh's ancient Lookalikes." you edited the book so can you explain the broader conceit of the book how it came to be what people could expect if they picked it up
0: yeah so the i guess sort of gestation process for the book had lasted quite a long time. I, I trace uh, in my own chapter, the seeds of the project back to a seminar I had in seminaries at Princeton, and it wasn't even a curricular on the book's accredited seminar, it was just a, for fun, bonus, mostly among PhD students event, a catch up session really on West Semitic inscriptions that was led by uh, the uh, estimable Dr. Chun Liang Xiao, now a Vanderbilt. And so he was just mostly leading this group of PhD students and other wannabe PhD students, such as myself through various texts from the Northwest Semitic realm in the iron age. And first among the texts that we encountered was the Misha inscription, which I'll say more about maybe in due course here this afternoon. But that inscription among others. I had never had to read through, translate through before, and I found it very fascinating and eye-opening and in some ways destabilizing. And mostly because of how similar in certain regards the patron god of ancient Moab was to the biblical god. And so that was, I wrote shortly after that uh, event, I was kind of an avid blogger at the time, so blogged my way through that confusion and concern, and wondered at the time if there were theological resources that might help to orient somebody who, like myself, who experiences that sort of um, just, yeah, destabilization, disorientation, confusion in that circumstance. Uh, Found very few such resources over the course of my time in doctoral studies. I did run across a few helpful essay by Woodmark Kale, by Patrick Miller, another one by John Levinson. But these were buried in obscure resources. And I wanted for guidance in that specific theological challenge. And it was during more or less of a low point at, in my writing process of doing the dissertation that I thought to myself, who better to address a question like that than the people who've spent most of their careers delving through these ancient Near Eastern texts, but who also, in some ways, hold themselves accountable to worshiping communities, whether Jewish or Christian. I reached out to a variety of people, some of whom had tenuous connections to me or to Emory, and invited them to contribute to this book project. That was spring of 2017, and pitched it to well, to Eisenbrowns at the time, it was later acquired by a different university press, but pitched it to Eisenbrowns and uh, away we went, really. And mostly then it was just a matter of keeping my contributors on track, making sure to send out monthly reminders and urging them to, to observe the deadline.
1: All the things a manager does, <laughs> Exactly. Which you seem to have done quite well. So vertigo, I think, is the word you use to describe the effect that it had on you in your chapter. Let's let's get into your chapter. Like we've talked about broadly, but specifically your chapter, which I think is, it's pretty interesting. And it's, it's not a softball topic that you decided to pick up.
0: Yeah, th- thanks for saying that. And I'm, I really am grateful to you and to anybody else really for just letting me know that it's been helpful in some way to you. Yeah, so the vertigo is right. That's the word that I picked out to describe, looking back retrospectively on my own first pass through the Misha inscription. And only really over time did I develop the vocabulary with any sort of precision to articulate why was the experience of the Misha inscription disorienting, vertigo-inducing, dizzying. Because on the face of it, it's exactly what any good historian should expect is that one text from the ancient Levant, in the case of the Misha inscription from the ninth century and uh, written in the first person voice of a Moabite king named Misha, who's also mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, uh, describing his exploits, really how he built a high place, a bama, which is another word used in Hebrew scripture, high place, a mountain, a shrine of some sort to his patron God, Chemosh, in thanks, in celebration for Chemosh's deliverance of the Moabite people, the Moabite nation, and really, especially through Misha's uh, dedication and fealty to the patron God, Chemosh, how he overcame Moab's enemies, including Israel, whom he says they annihilated utterly which is interesting and instructive for biblical scholars thinking about the inner biblical accounts of conquest. The Misha inscription says they totally wiped out Israel. Obviously, that's not the case, historically, realistically. Uh, And also how he, the king Misha, pursued various building projects at Chemosh's behest. And so it's this inscription that bears many similarities to what one finds in particular in biblical texts, such as Joshua Judges, also in Samuel Kings, the sorts of patronage, the kinds of warring and building projects that are specific to kings in Israel, all that finds a mirror image in the Misha inscription. And so the reason for that vertigo is simply that my own theological formation hadn't prepared me to encounter a lookalike like that. Because of the kinds of claims that uh, Christians and Jews commonly make of the biblical God, especially that God's uniqueness, in particular, that understanding, I think, helped to generate a sense of unease in encountering an ancient deity that looks so similar in many respects to the biblical God. So that was the source of that vertigo that I mentioned in my
1: chapter. And so you lay out three... I don't know, because it's the book came out a little while ago, would you still say it's three?
0: Yeah, I appreciate that question. I, I do identify three major approaches. And I should say, just for sake of underlining it here, that this whole conversation, the whole question of the chapter, uh, is not one that I expect will be interesting to scholars who are operating in an exclusively historical mode. In other words, like I say, a historian should have, there's no, no real friction that one's expectations generate when it comes to encountering the Misha inscription. It is exactly on par for, for what what these Iron Age kingdoms of the Levant look like, how they function, how they, how they operated. The challenge or the friction that the chapter and indeed the whole book aims to engage is caused by theological commitments. So in other words, I think that the challenge of the book, the theological challenge, is one that belongs especially to Jews and Christians. Um, And so I expect for the book to be of interest to people who toggle between those domains. In other words, people who are worshiping God at the same time as they are studying God in the context of the ancient world.
1: I don't think, I guess, that a scholarly or academic pursuit or interest in Bible or biblical texts necessarily excludes the possibility of investigating something like this, because uh, the text that I use to guide what I consider is okay, is this worth the time of the audience I'm trying to build? The Oxford Handbook of Biblical Studies, there's a chapter in there by Walter Brueggemann on theology as it applies to the Old Testament. It, I don't think it's wrong to try to evaluate how communities engage with these things because they wouldn't exist if it weren't for those theological interests, whether that's like projected from the audience itself or even some of the presuppositions baked in about yahweh or adonai however you want to frame that so about god or from the people those things are definitely something that i think scholars and academics maybe not all of them but should be concerned with but let's get into your what are the three approaches
0: yeah no thanks for reminding about about that, but I think that's actually a very perceptive observation. I didn't know that about that handbook that Grigemond contributed. I think that you're right, though, that theology can mean something very observational, very analytical, simply parsing out how ancient peoples talked about, spoke about, theorized about, invoked, called upon, practiced, how their lives revolved around uh, ancient deities. That is, in a manner of speaking, theology, histor- in a historical mode. Then there's also a theology that is looking to say something about a, a real extra textual God on the basis of these ancient texts. And so there's a lot of confusion in biblical studies around both of those coordinates, both of those axes. And But I do think that what you said is right, too, that the texts would not have survived their original time-stamped horizons, apart from some confidence on the part of their tradents and the people responsible for curating and circulating them, that the God they talked about and referred to somehow would act in ways continuous with how that God acts in the texts, which is to say, theology is a key ingredient in their transmission and their survival especially as canonical literature. So as far as the three approaches go, they're really all of them in various ways trying to solve a problem that the text themselves occasion. The Bible itself, uh, in some ways, sets forth the expectations of divine uniqueness, holiness, set-apartness, distinctiveness, and solitude, perhaps, in some more monotheizing texts, and in a recursive move, these three approaches in various ways are trying to resolve the issue on the basis of the Bible. So the Bible creates some of the expectations that cause the problem, and then the Bible giving aid to whatever theological approach might relieve it. And the three approaches are, first, And maybe more commonly in thoughtful, reflective Christian theological circles, I'm not as aware of a counterpart to this commitment on the part of Jewish scholars, but is to say that Chemosh resembles the biblical God because both of them alike, perhaps to varying intensities or in varying degrees, that they adhere to, they point towards, they are reflections of the true God. So that is to say, whoever and whatever the real God is transcends any one of these individual ancient traditions. Perhaps, and commonly among such scholarship, the biblical portraiture hews more closely to that true God, but nonetheless, that God, the true God, exceeds what any individual cultural container can say. So, um, so the resemblance between God and, Ke- and the biblical God and Kemosh shouldn't worry because they're both extrusions of truth, uh, re- refractions of the light, or what have you. And here, I pointed to both some work in I think Roman Catholic conciliar theology, as well as folks like Pannenberg and Gordon Kaufman, and Patrick Miller also lives within this trajectory. That's one approach. So the refractions of the light, but no individual artifact is the sum total of who God is, hence ought not to be troubled by lookalikes. The second approach is one that's much more time-honored, among Jews and Christians, though it is outré for scholars, particularly those in a modern guild, historical critical mode. And I already, in the one review I've seen so far of the book, was criticized for even mentioning this possibility. But that is that other gods, insofar as they resemble the biblical god, are somehow um, demonic in origin, that they are deliberate and predatory in their resemblance. So they're meant to fool, meant to mislead their spiritual trickery in some form or fashion. Time-honored if outré among scholars. The third option is in some ways harder to express, and that's the one that at time of writing I was more interested in and engaged with. And in fact, I tried to research and read about this one Dutch anti-fascist theologian, K.H. Miskota, in part to be able to write this chapter responsibly. But that is following especially from work by the Protestant theologian Karl Barth, as well as the Jewish thinker, philosopher, theologian, Franz Rosenzweig, who both make very radical critiques of their own traditions and keep open, a very Bardian word would be diastasis, the difference, the infinite qualitative difference between any human production and God. So even over against Christianity, in Bart's case, over against human religiosity in general for both of them, they would say God is not that, that God always maintains some otherness relative to human traditions, human constructions, and so on. And in that way, uh, such scholars can accommodate the whole edifice of modern scholarly insight into how these ancient traditions grew and developed over time, so they're not locked in, in other words, to maintaining a very direct truthfulness of the biblical tradition. Instead, Bart and this Dutch theologian Miskota would get at the truthfulness of the biblical tradition only in a way that honors God's intent to mediate the divine self in and through these traditions. So not nothing in and of themselves qualifies any human speech, any human tradition, any human text, including scripture, scriptural traditions, to witness to the divine self. Only by God's appointment, God's designation, God's sanctifying work, would any human traditions, texts, ideas point truthfully and adequately to God. And so that's a an insight that all of those theologians maintain, and that my chapter In short, compass rehashes.
1: So, how does that affect engaging with the text? Because I think that's more of a going forward and continue to engage with it as an individual. But so academically, are those any of those things that you look at and say, I should use this or not that, or maybe not any of them to engage with the text to understand it? Is there a, a a distinction that you draw between how you engage personally and how you gauge like academically or scholarly?
0: Hmm. Not that I would understand along those lines personally versus scholarly, but I will say that I very self-consciously inhabit different discourses that maybe all fall under the more general heading of biblical studies. On the one hand, in a historian, and as a religion, as a historian of religion, I follow the human uh, anthropogenic, socio-political explanations all the way down. And so in that mode, actually, I wrote an article in grad school that in some ways really has laid the path for some of my subsequent research and scholarship uh, that compares the biblical God to Chemosh and really traces out the quote unquote afterlife of Chemosh, but how the biblical God was developing, evolving, changing, transforming, responding to various historical and cultural stimuli, really alongside of and in tandem with the Moabite God, Chemosh and other cults, other religious practices of the region are all in a shared bind in the wake of the loss of kingship that they're all responding to shared experiences of diaspora life living outside their homeland of speaking new languages lingua franca of the empires that rolled through the region persians with aramaic and then subsequently greek language after alexander's conquests. and so as a historian i feel liberated by that approach that my chapter outlines to press fully into those human explanations that the biblical God is whatever else the biblical God is a precipitate of human activity and in that way is explicable as such. So I, I, I'm fully lean into that. That's a different practice, a different posture than another discourse that I inhabit. And that is a more constructive, a more theological mode of approaching these texts. And so in that, with that as my with that as my charter, I'm not as much interested in tracing out origins or following through an evolutionary history of a tradition of God, history of God, which enterprise I fully support writing and have contributed to myself. But I'm interested in taking these texts not genealogically, not historically, but looking with them. So following along the grain, to use a common analogy, looking with them at what they were seeking to promote, the kinds of vision of God, of human life, of community um, that they sought to promote, to cultivate, to challenge. And so following the texts, not as an oblique window into some ancient phenomenon but rather in terms of what they themselves what they themselves were trying to communicate and with reference to a god who isn't just any specific momentary human production but is i trust i hope a god outside of the text who is out there loose in the world and indeed sustaining the world Those are two different modes that interact quite complexly. And I've written from that nexus point for a number of different articles and so on, but they are distinct modes. And I've actually (laughs) critiqued historians of religion for occasionally trespassing into doing theology inadvertently. So I think that there's some benefit in respecting the integrity of these approaches And I don't like it when scholars who say that they are doing history in fact end up recommending uh, beliefs or activities to do with the real and living God. I think that's – they're not holding true to their own methodological um, stated commitment.
1: And you can pass on this question if it requires you to name names, if that's something you don't want to do. But what does that look like for an historian to do theology?
0: No, lot. I don't mind naming names in part because I have publicly named these names in past, um, and ran the naming by the named authors themselves before sending it to print, just to ensure that they thought I was accurately describing what they were doing. Uh, but I have a an article that's out a couple of years now called "Elephantini Trespasses," and in it I point out how two scholars who I respect a lot, actually in some ways I am very much simpatico with their methods with their findings historically guard grainrod is a Norwegian scholar of early Judaism and Bob Becking is a, a Dutch scholar also of early Judaism and so for example
1: a contributor uh, to this book right
0: yeah Becking did contribute to the book yes <laughs> um, and I I've favorably reviewed his other works. I follow, I've learned a lot from both of them. They're both great scholars. We're on good terms. I consider both of them friends. But I did critique them in this article for trespassing that line, saying they're doing history, but in fact making some kind of a constructive theological claim. So in the case of Rod, uh, what he does is to basically say... The Bible says God is housed in Jerusalem. God is Jerusalem-based, which is simplistic on my part, not on his. But the texts from this ancient Jewish site called Elephantini, they really orbit their own temple that was in southern Egypt. And so he asks, who's to say they're not right? That is, that the biblical God or sem- non-biblical god, the God. Yahoo is based in southern Egypt rather than Jerusalem, um, which is fascinating. Such an interesting claim. But it does, to me, cross the line. You're no longer talking about just an ancient belief or practice that's observable from an ancient people, but asking about the location of God, the sort of extra textual God. So that's, it's doing a different it tips over into doing something else, asking a theological question. And then Bob Becking, in his really great work on, on identity in Persian Egypt, he holds up the example of this same Jewish community at Elephantini as a positive exemplar for how a multicultural community can sustain itself over time. So that's, that is no longer looking at an ancient people just in their own right, on their own grounds, trying to figure out who they are, how they moved in the world, what they thought, how they acted, how they ate, how they married, and so on. But now using them as a model for how current day societies might pursue long-term multicultural life. So that too is tipping over into doing some, making an ethical recommendation on the basis of ancient texts, whether biblical or non-biblical. And in that way, that's no, longer, that's no longer doing history as we tend to think of it. It's doing something else and arguably something more theological.
1: Okay. I will look for that because now I'm curious. Have they responded to that?
0: Yeah, I ran it past them before going to print. It was years in the making of the article. And so I really wanted to make sure that I reflected accurately what they thought. And they both signed off on it and said, yes, you've understood me completely. I maybe disagree with what were your your diagnosis but it is accurate it's an accurate description of what i think and they've both been in touch with me and we've had communications after that so they haven't written like a counter article or anything but and i've heard from other scholars who are in that niche sub-discipline which i happily occupy and advertise where whenever i can elephantini jewish early jewish studies have found that a helpful caution that the article It's a caution to scholars that we can do history, but that's a different and a distinct operation than making recommendations for how modern day people should think about, talk to, practice life in view of God. That's theology.
1: Because this is pretty new conceptually to me too. Okay, so the idea that there are, as the book calls them, divine doppelgangers. I think in my head, if you're talking about Greek or Roman deities. I have an idea of a pantheon that may not be peaceful. It's something of a dysfunctional family. Is there any evidence that in the ancient Near East, there was a similar pantheon? Aside from the fact that a pantheon could just be, oh, look, we found evidence of all these different gods. But do they coexist in a way that there were people who maybe their successors wouldn't worship Yahweh, but they had some kind of worship or devotion to Yahweh and Kimosh as well? Or was that not a thing in that area?
0: Yeah. So it's a good question. Definitely the Greek pantheon, which many of your listeners might be familiar with for some reason from our us education system still does, at least in my experience, touch on the Greek myths and Greek pantheons and so on. But at any rate, Greece belonged fully integrally to the ancient Mediterranean world. And so there are other pantheons of neighboring peoples that are just as involved and dysfunctional as their sort of olympiad gods were the hittites in anatolia right next door to ancient greece had very complex pan- pantheon system mesopotamians had as well quite complex developed pantheon as did ugarit the city from ancient Syria, perhaps arguably Canaanite city of the Bronze Age. I'm a little hesitant myself about calling Ugarit Canaanite, but certainly a very closely related ancient people who had, again, in this particular question, a very developed, very robust, complicated, hierarchical pantheon. So in other words, a lot of different pantheons in the region that look like each other somewhat and in in many ways are distinctive, each in their own specific realm and register. There's serious debate in the study of ancient Israelite religion what their pantheon in the earliest periods, so early Iron Age to mid-Iron Age, what that might have looked like and whether it contained the same multi-leveled strata as we find at Ugarit, so that you have one tier of messenger gods, lesser functionary type gods, and then another second tier of the sort of family of gods, the main pantheon, and then the highest tier, the chief patron high god or high gods. So some very influential accounts of ancient Israelite religion, in particular by Mark Smith, who've learned the Divine Doppelganger's book, lay that account out. I am myself maybe a little less convinced of that. I think there's quite a chronological gap from Ugarit uh, in the Late Bronze Age to ancient Israel in the Iron Age. I think as well there's geographical distance that ought not to be underestimated. So I would caution against using the Ugaritic pantheon as a ready-made template for understanding ancient Israelite religion. Instead, I what I see In Israel's ancient neighbors, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Phoenician city-states, the Levant region, Aram, the Aramean kingdoms, is much smaller pantheons. You don't have a huge apparatus, and that seems to be calibrated to the scale of the state itself. That in ancient Egypt, it's huge monumental state. So you've got a lot of layers in the human bureaucracy, and so the divine bureaucracy looks like that. Whereas in these smaller, minor states of the ancient, of the sort of Iron Age Levant, the states themselves are probably more modest, and the divine strata are correspondingly smaller. So you don't have high, middle, low. You have a few gods at the top, And I would say, and this is maybe somewhat idiosyncratic, although I hope not totally, that each of these states in the Iron Age, as they emerged, really while the Assyrian Empire was dealing with its own problems back at home, there was a moment of restiveness, of freedom when these states could develop and could emerge with some sovereignty. That they promoted, each of them promoted a signature God. So that in Israel and Judah, those little kingdoms promoted. Biblical God, Yahoo, or whatever. And then these other little states that neighbored them also each promoted their own distinctive patron. Chemosh for the Moabites, and Milcom for the Ammonites, and Kos for the Edomites, and the Aramean kingdoms each had their own, you know, Rimon or whomever the patron god they worshipped. And so Pantheon might be. They had multiple gods. They focused as a state, at least, on one god. I don't know if that kind of gets at your good question.
1: That kind of reminds me, I remember years ago reading that one of the strengths of, say, the Persians or the Romans was that they were welcoming of syncretism. They're fine. Believe whatever you want. Just send us our tribute. Pay your taxes. Don't cause any trouble, and we will envelop the things that you believe into the identity of being Persian or being Roman. So I guess I never considered, okay, on the way up to building yourself, there's going to be smaller political units that are probably going to have less of a need for more diversity in the religious ideologies that spring up. Does that does that seem to work with what you're saying?
0: It does. Yeah, it definitely does. It certainly does. One key difference that might explain the relative success of the biblical God in comparison to these, in other ways, very similar ancient Levantine states, and here I am channeling an argument most fully developed by Seth Sanders uh, in a couple articles of his, that these patron gods enjoyed varying levels of popular support. So in other words, just because the king and the royal household promote the worship of one God, which seems to be what they did, they these neighboring little countries next, next door to Israel and Judah, each promoted a God, a distinctive God. And so in that way, the one Godness of ancient Israel and Judah is not some kind of crazy innovation specific to them. Seems to be a regional quality of these states that they promoted one god in part, perhaps to cultivate a, a sort of a national identity. It's part of their statecraft strategy. But the gods that they picked, uh, or that's probably too conniving sounding, the gods that they that the royal houses already worshipped didn't necessarily match with the gods who enjoyed popular devotion. They did in Israel and Judah, interestingly. And I think that they did to a great extent in Moab, so that the Misha inscription, the king Misha says that he's such a pious follower of the god, a worshiper of the god Chemosh, in part because he knows that's to political advantage, because the people of that area already worship Chemosh. And so if he can say, I'm a good king. I'm a super faithful follower of this God. I do what this, what Kimosh tells me to do. They'll like him better and accept his kingship because they already worship Kimosh. Kimosh already has some standing with them. That seems not to have been the case with say the kingdom of Ammon, that the Royal household worshiped a God that was their own thing. And that the populace at large in Ammon Worshipped El, God, just or a different God. And so that could help to explain why Milcom, who's the who was the god of the royal household, didn't thrive in the eras after Ammon was no more, because he wasn't popular with the people of the region. They worshipped El. And so, anyways, just to say, popular devotion could, but didn't necessarily have to match with the distinctive God that these states, these little small kingdoms promoted.
1: I didn't know that about the other like adjacent ancient Near Eastern cultures, but I do remember, because I don't know, like sometime in my early 20s, reading Walter Brueggemann's Introduction to the Old Testament. And then because, I don't know, something to do with my Audible account, I could listen to it again for free without paying for it. So I've been listening to that lately. And- There's a clear juxtaposition between the theological underpinnings of Proverbs, which is essentially powerful people telling you how to live your life, Mm -hmm. and then the critique of powerful people coming from a rural prophet like Amos, for example. The critique of the power structure is really different, but worshiping the same Deity, and that is how does that happen?
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, you put your finger on something that's very interesting. That, and again, that bears out this point that in Israel and Judah, not completely, because there's plenty of evidence that they worshipped, at least in certain cities, certain shrines, certain times, a consort to Yahoo, perhaps other gods more sporadically that we can find in the record of names. So theophoric names, a family named their kids after the names themselves call on the God to do something. That's why all the biblical names call on the Lord or thank Yahoo for doing something. Eliyahu, Yahoo is my God, whatever there's Yahoo names. So similarly in ancient Israel, we find evidence of names that are sometimes calling on gods who are not Yahoo. But for the most part, all layers of this society across various regions, tribal identities are all worshiping this God. And that does help historically to explain how this God lasted such that even when the kingship no more and the people are dispossessed, exiled, or as somewhat the case seemingly that it wasn't necessarily that Judeans, Jews were deported all over the place, but just that they took up long-term residence in Egypt, around the Mediterranean, that they continued to worship this God, because this was, this God belonged integrally to people's identity, again, across various sectors and differences, identities in Israel and Judah. And again, not to belabor this, but I I think that that was the case with these neighboring countries too, but not necessarily to the same degree. So we also find, and this is the topic of my research these days, that ancient Moabites, for example, also continued to worship their god Chemosh in exile. They were in Babylon too, around the Mediterranean, because they took up long-term residence in Egypt and other places. Continued to worship Chemosh, continued to name their kids after Chemosh, and belonged to different tiers, different strata of society, from merchants to mercenaries and so on. So there's parallels in that regard to the history of Yahwism that I think complicate how we tell the story of early Judaism emerging, but certainly there are also key differences. And one of the first, and this may be looping back to an earlier moment in this conversation, is that the traditions to do with Chemosh, to do with Milcom, to do with Kos, to do with Melkart, don't seem to have crystallized in any really thoroughgoing textual way. That the traditions were passed along, Moabites were still calling on Chemosh in Egypt or wherever they found themselves in the ancient world, perhaps worshiping in shrines and temples, maybe in even in synagogues. Edomites, Edomians had synagogues. They even have a synagogue to their god Kos in Hellenistic Egypt, but they didn't do so with reference to any body of texts, of, of, of traditions that were textualized.
1: So because we're advancing in time, I want to make sure that this is in a section of the podcast that it's condensed. So just real quick recapping the three approaches. There's demonic deception, Right. There's only ever been one God and all the other claimants to divinity are demons tricking people. The second one would be, and you these two and three, you might have to correct me some on, which is why I wanted to condense them here. The second one is these were all kind of an evolution toward an understanding of divinity. And the third one is none of them are truly representative of the actual divinity that's out there which is out there but this is the best approximation that we have is that fair correct where did i miss the mark
0: yeah i think mostly i would say that the approach i sought to defend or to articulate to champion is that one of these cultural artifacts from antiquity one of these god traditions is true but not because of any inherent qualifications or credentials as such, but rather in view of God's own decision to make that tradition true to the divine self. So it's not a matter of a God who exceeds all these different human traditions that approximate God to some extent, but rather of none of them, all of them are totally just human productions, none of them approximate God at all, Except for one that God has nominated to present the divine self to the world. And that is the scandal of particularity paradigm that the chapter articulates.
1: Okay. I figured I, I would call it out so that there's a point I knew there in quick succession and also be corrected. <laughs> but I, I got the other two, right?
0: Yes. Yes. That's right. That's okay. right. Okay. And I appreciated your question earlier, too, about your observation, just that this book has been out for a while, although it's just coming out in paperback, which is exciting. But it's been out for a while. That's true. And uh, just to check in with myself about have my own views progressed? Have they kept more or less the same shape as this chapter presents them? And uh, I appreciate that inquiry. And I think that I think it's I'm fine with the chapter. It's very schematic. I'm more and more of a mind that with these kinds of questions, particularly theological questions, that there's probably no grand unified theory. In other words, I expect that. reality. I don't
1: know. There are plenty of those out there. There are.
0: There There are
1: plenty of there are plenty of people who claim to have a grand unified theory.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I just, I wonder if things aren't weirder than even I thought at the time. That, who knows, maybe some ancient gods, maybe they were demonic. Maybe some of them were extrusions of truth. Maybe some are just fully human, neutral artifacts all the way down. In other words, probably whatever is the case is a lot more convoluted and weird and mixed and messy even then the chapter lays
1: out like stargate that's like stargate i'm holding out for alien symbiotes posing as divinities
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah along Star- this line along the alien line one book that's actually helpfully complicated and weirdened my thinking about this is um gene wolf who's a, a science fiction author occult figure in science fiction, but who has a truly weird and convoluted view of history and the world that's instructed me as a theorist of history that things can be a lot more complicated and stranger and messier than I might at first have
1: thought. I feel like you you helped me pull out of a nosedive (laughs) (laughs) by not simply laughing at me. You actually engaged on that point. I appreciate that. Before we go, because I like to give people time to answer this question as much or as little as they'd like, where would you point people in biblical studies in that large pool of disciplines that all feeds into biblical studies? Where would you direct people? Books, podcasts? YouTube, you have the floor.
0: Yeah. So it's my bound and duty as a participant in the small, but hardy crew of Elephantini specialists to advertise and promote the work of people in that field. And there's really a pretty much a book a year coming out that's, that addresses this ancient Jewish community of Elephantini, but I think it's important. In part because of an article that Gard Grønerud, my Norwegian Elefantini friend, published in JBL a couple of years back, that calls on scholars of early Judaism to really change our basic orienting categories. That even saying a term like Second Temple Judaism is, in effect, paraphrasing the Bible's own account of this period, of this people, of this religion, and so. Truly to complicate how we understand emergent Judaism on the basis of an archive like that we find at Elefantini. So I think watch Elephantini stuff because it's a cue to larger conceptual upheaval in the field of biblical studies. And along that same line, I have my eye very much on scholarship following several significant figures, especially in Pauline scholarship, which might surprise, I don't know, based on my own disciplinary. Billy Wick, But in Pauline scholarship, this is called Paul within Judaism perspective, now growing and changing into Paul within paganism perspective. So if thinking of figures like Paula Fredrickson, Matt Novenson, Matthew Teeson, uh, and their pupils and protégés who are publishing a lot these days. But in that way too, I see a moment of upheaval of revisiting our basic scaffolding in biblical studies. Shuffling things around. So, these big categories that we tend to think about the Bible within Judaism, Christianity, paganism, Hellenization, revisiting these concepts, scrambling them, changing them around, proposing new paradigms to try to understand the phenomena of the period from within. So, that's another area I'd say along that same line. I keep my eye on Samaritan studies. And here I think of a scholar like Matthew Chalmers whose work is a key intervention there. Samaritans are another case of people who don't quite fit any of these molds that biblical scholars commonly bring to the field because it's not Judaism, really. But it's not just Mediterranean religion. So what is it? We don't have a good analytical category for what Samaritanism is. So that's another point where I see friction. I see upheaval happening. And then I'd say more generally, the field of Hellenistic, Near East, Hellenistic Near Eastern studies. Blackwell just released a companion volume, a handbook to this area. And this is, again, I think there's a ton of material that has simply fallen through the scholarly cracks because it doesn't really belong to biblical studies. It's not really classics. It's not really ancient Near East because it's from a later period. And so where do we put it? How do we think about it? It's not late antiquity, Hellenistic Near East. So that's another area that I see there's change afoot in biblical studies.
1: And I know that's particularly what I'm looking for to fill this podcast up is to start look at like, where are things going in 10 years? What's the article, the essay, the lecture that nobody's paying attention to? That's what I'm looking for because I'm a guy with a day job. This is just my hobby. I can nerd out. It's fine. I don't have anybody to impress. Nobody's grading me. So hopefully I'll build an audience, but I dig your enthusiasm before we get off here. Do you have anything else that you wanted to throw out there? Where can people find you?
0: Oh, gosh. Well, people can find me through my new or at this point when this drops relatively new faculty webpage. People can also find me online on Twitter, can email me, of course, Uh, and... uh, let's see gosh i should hopefully by the time this drops maybe hopefully have a book coming out called uh, monotheism and divine aggression so read, that'll be interesting and fun and in some ways follows on trajectories laid down by this divine doppelgangers book is mostly my published dissertation so there's a few places i can be found
1: fantastic thank you colin cornell thank you Thank you so much for listening please subscribe and rate the podcast on your favorite platform if you are interested in following supporting or engaging with the podcast anywhere else check out the link tree that i've hyperlinked in the show notes i try to put episodes out as soon as possible for five dollars a month on patreon so if there's something that i've announced or you've seen on social media just know five dollars a month you can listen to every episode that i have edited and i try to get them up within a week of recording the conversation take care